yet again and open with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms. And this morning, we're going to look together at Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is on page 620 and 621 in your pew Bible. I would also encourage you to open your bulletin to page 5, and there you'll find an outline for our time together. Over the past several weeks, we've been uh, doing, we don't do it very often. We have on occasion done a topical series. And so initially I had planned, we talked about the Lord's Supper last week. This week we're going to talk about baptism. And then we had a baptism. And then I thought, you know, I, if this is my last Sunday in the pulpit at Grace Church, I, I really don't want to do a topical sermon. Uh, I want to do what we've done for 13 years, which is open the book and talk about the book, because the book is smarter than I am. And the book is inspired and inerrant and infallible, and I am none of those things, even in my best moment, not even my best day. So, in our Summers in the Psalms, we've gotten to three of my, or two of my favorite psalms. This morning, we will get to the third one. We've done Psalm 51, we've done Psalm 90, and now this morning, Psalm 121. Let's read together. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and evermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now, uh, as we give these few moments to give attention to your word, we pray that you would bless our time. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Human beings love a good travel story, especially we English-speaking folks. You could argue, as Tolkien does, that two of the most influential books in the English language are travel tales, Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales and John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Both shape the way we use the English language, and both are still in print today. Now, if you want to disagree with Tolkien, go ahead. If you want to face the wrath of the writers of Rohan, that's your own business. But I'm inclined to agree. Well, whether you know it or not, we are all travelers as well. Or maybe we're not on our way to a great feast in Canterbury, but we are all on a journey. And the fact that we're all on a journey raises then several kinds of questions. What kind of journey is this? Or maybe to be more postmodern precise, if that is really a thing, what kind of journey do you think you're on? How exactly do you hope to arrive on this journey, and how will you know if you have indeed arrived? Our text for this morning is a journey song. Psalm 121 is a psalm of ascents. It's one of 15 songs and prayers used by folks living in exile who were expectantly making the journey back to Jerusalem 
to worship with God's people in the temple. As is usually the case in these kinds of travel sagas, we do learn something about the people who are engaged in the travel. But more importantly, we're going to learn something about the God they serve and the God they look to to help them in their travel. Now on page five in the bulletin, as I said, there's an outline for our time together. It'll let you know how we're going to spend the next hour, roughly. Kidding. Half an hour. And for that, we have something called a big idea, which in one sentence is what we think the sermon is about. And here it is. Where you look for help reveals much about your walk with Jesus. Where you look for help reveals much about your walk with Jesus. Two points we want to make this morning. First, and they're both questions. The first question then is this. What kind of Christian are you? What kind of Christian are you? Americans are not much for asking for help. In fact, we're not really even fond of admitting that we need help. Instead, we value self-made, self-sufficient folks who have everything they need for the living of this life within themselves. You don't need help. What you need is to release the beast within. You have all of the resources that you need you only need to tap into them. And so when we do require help, it's usually in the form of self-help. Now, if you doubt this, please consider that in 2022, gross sales for the self-help industry in the United States stood at $13.4 billion. That's how much we spent in books and subscriptions and apps and podcasts. It's also the fastest growing sector in book app sales, according to both the New York Times and iTunes. $13.4 billion to, that has been spent in one year alone on self-help. Let's understand then that verse 1 begins with something very un-American. For the writer of Psalm 121 tells us that we need help. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? We need help and we need help from outside ourselves. The psalmist does not think in any way, shape or form that they can just somehow release whatever is inside them and that will be sufficient for the task or for the moment that is at hand. But how and whether or not we ask for help reveals the kind of journey that we think that we're on. Are you here this morning simply seeking to live a good life? Are you on the trail of becoming a good person? Are you on a quest to accumulate stuff? Is your desire to be remembered? Is your desire to be great? I know of a man who uh, really tried to, he avoided any kind of confrontational um, statement or any sort of confrontation at all with family members because he said that when he died, he wanted his family to say nice things about him. And if he was confrontational in any way, it would risk the legacy that he thought he was leaving behind. 
Or are we, as the Bible tells us, on a journey from a garden to a city? A city that's not of this earth. A city that none of us has ever seen before. You see, understanding the kind of journey that you're on is going to go a long way in understanding the kind of help that we all need. And asking then for help from God reveals what kind of Christian you think you are. Do you only need a hand up? Do you need God merely to be sort of the 13th step in a 12-step program? God, I, I got all this, but I'm going to need a little help with this. Do you need God to take what you already have and just make it better? And you see, asking for help reveals whether or not you understand the truth about your situation. Friends, we don't just need help. We need to be rescued. We are helpless. And not only are we helpless, but we are exiles. The home we have is a home that is not here yet. We are looking for it. But we're not yet there. So what kind of Christian are you? Are you a self-help Christian? God's going to give you that little bit of push that you need. Or are you the kind of Christian who understands that, no, you are indeed on an epic journey. You're headed to a place that you can't even imagine that you have never, ever seen. And you need more than help to get there. You need to be rescued because you are helpless. Secondly, so what kind of God do we serve? It's one thing to say, okay, we need to cry to God for help. It's one thing to say, yes, we need to cry out to the Lord that he would rescue us. But what kind of answer can we expect? What kind of help can we anticipate? And both those questions are going to be tied then into the nature and character of the one to whom we call. So what kind of God is it that we serve? What kind of God is it that we are calling upon? Well, in verse 2, we learn something about the God to whom we are calling. Now, let's stop. Before we look at verse 2 and understand, there is great danger in asking for help. There's great danger in admitting the kind of weakness that needs someone to come along and provide assistance. And there's danger in asking God for help. After all, God may simply say no. God may say that he's busy. Remember that wonderful text, the showdown in 2 Kings between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, in which as he's taunting the prophets of Baal, uh, Elijah says, hey, maybe your God is busy. Maybe he's on a journey. Now, that's the nice way of the Hebrew uh, when he asks, maybe he's busy. Uh, the literal translation is maybe he's in the toilet. Well, is the God of the Bible like that? Is he, is he so busy doing other stuff that he can't answer you? Or maybe God might want to help you, but he's not able to help you. If you have some sort of problem with your car, I would love to help you. I would have all the desire in the world to help you, and I have zero skill when it comes to actually helping you fix your car. It's simply a skill set and a group of abilities that I do not have. Maybe God is like that. He wants to, but he can't. 
Or perhaps your situation might be on his ability to address. I mean, maybe God just leaves some stuff for us, or maybe there are things in which God says, well, I, I could do that, but no. Well, right away, the psalmist tells us of the kind of God to whom we are crying. He answers his own question. His help comes from the Lord, who is the maker of heaven and earth. So as the creator, there is nothing that is beyond God's ability to address. And as the creator, there is nothing that beyond God's control. And yet I wonder this morning, as we're crying out for help, why is it that we don't seem to act that way? Why is it that we seem to forget that God is the creator, that there's nothing beyond his ability, and there's nothing beyond his control? So oftentimes, when I hear uh, Christians exhorted and called upon to cry out to God, it really is merely as a last resort. It's not the first place we turn. It's the last place we turn when we've tried everything else. One pastor once went so far as to say this, Hey, listen, if you've tried everything else, what could it hurt you to try God? Well, friends, that's not the picture that the psalmist paints. He is the maker of heaven and earth. There is nothing that is beyond his ability to address, and there is nothing that is beyond his control. But knowing that God has the ability to do something doesn't necessarily mean that he wants to do something. I learned as a teenager when I needed money, I could probably go to my parents they might have it, but that didn't necessarily mean that they were willing to contribute to whatever social function I thought was crucial for my happiness and my existence as a human being. Having the ability to do something doesn't necessarily mean that someone wants to do something. Well, is that true of God? Well, look at verses 3 to 8. In verses 3 to 8, we see the character of God revealed for us, not just his power, not just his ability, as in verse 2, but we see his character. In verses 3 and 4, we're told that God cares about where we step. And furthermore, God never misses a step. He's never asleep. He's never in the bathroom. He's never indisposed. Rather, the psalmist tells us, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, the one who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. God cares about the way in which you travel. He cares about your well-being. And God never misses a step that you take. Verses 5 and 6, we see that as we travel, as we're on this journey, God is a shade for us. Now, this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. We understand the Lord being our keeper. We get that. But the Lord being a shade on our right hand. And what is this with the moon striking us by night? This is, uh, please understand that in, in the worldview of, of the writer of, the, the, of this particular psalm, the right hand was the important hand. It's the hand with which you would greet people. It's the hand with which you would write or throw things. It's the hand with which you would wield a sword 
or spear. The less hand was used for other things that we won't mention this morning. And so you wanted your right hand protected. You wanted your right hand empowered. And the psalmist says that the Lord is your keeper. He's the shade on your right hand. In other words, he keeps your right hand ready to go. He makes sure that your right hand is ready to use it however you need it. Now, we understand sunstroke, but many of us, unless you grew up watching The Addams Family, probably have never heard of moonstroke. But for ancient Israelites, the effects of the moon were every bit as baffling and as powerful as the effects of the sun. And what the psalmist is here telling us is that God protects us from both. That as we travel, it is God who keeps us. As we travel, it is God who is the shade for us. He protects the parts of us necessary to defend ourselves. And God protects us both day and night. But then he goes a step further. And he speaks not merely of uh, the God who won't let our foot be moved or keeps shade on our right hand. But in verses 7 to 8, he speaks now of the entire person. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, in the trivialities of your life, think about how often you come and go in the course of a week. And the psalmist assures us that in that, God is our keeper. Now, please understand, it doesn't mean that we will never be affected by evil. It doesn't mean that bad things will never happen to us. It doesn't mean that Christians can never die tragically. But the key is that word keep. Evil cannot keep you. Your life, if you are a believer, cannot be kept by anyone other than the God who saved and redeemed you. And furthermore, uh, this is not just something for this particular life, but as the psalmist ends with this wonderful crescendo, it's from this time forth and forevermore. In the trivialities of your life, God will keep your life. It's amazing. You don't really think about how much uh, going out and coming in you do until you get to the age as a parent in which you have new drivers. I remember uh, the particular kind of parental angst that struck me when Gabrielle started driving and the first time we said, sure, you can take your brother and drive to youth group. And then the phone call came, can we go to Applebee's for half apps? It's not really a dangerous drive. It's not that far. It's the edge of town. Who doesn't enjoy half price wings? Who doesn't want to go to half apps? And yet, as a parent of a new driver, I felt the angst particularly of having my child going out and coming in. Friends, the psalmist assures us that it is God who keeps us even in those trivial things, in those mundane, everyday, going out and coming in. 
God watches over us from this time forth and forevermore. Well, for the past 13 years, it's been our pleasure to be on this journey with you. This past week, it's interesting, I uh, was at the Y and saw a couple young men who grew up in this church who I baptized. They're not little anymore. Uh, They're both in college. Had a chance to speak with them. Had a chance also at the Y to speak with Ben Nevius. Ben, you may recall, uh, was one of the first weddings that we did at Grace Church. Liz, his wife, was a part of those early days of Grace Church. We've had births and we've had burials. We've had weddings and divorces. We have rejoiced and we have mourned. So please understand that leaving you is hard. Amy and I were talking this morning and she said, how are you feeling? I said, I'm this weird mixture of sadness and relief. Not many pastors know when their last Sunday is going to be. It's one of the sad realities of ministry. I've been in churches where I didn't realize that my last Sunday in the pulpit had come and gone and I didn't know it. And yet, yet in the midst of that, I know to whom I am entrusting you. And I know that if it's even possible to be, uh, to have more assurance, to have a promise that is more comforting and, and more stabilizing in our life, the Apostle Paul does it for us in our New Testament reading for this morning. If you think Psalm 121 is good, friends, the text that Les read for us is astounding. Because the Apostle Paul takes this wonderful promise that we have in Psalm 121 and he cranks it up a notch. And he cranks it up a notch. I don't know if you noticed how he does it. But he does it for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want proof that God cares about you? Do you want proof that God cares for his people, that God cares for Grace Church. Paul says it's simple. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read it again. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but also gave him up for us, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who should bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. You could go on and say geographical distance, a change in call. No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, one of the things that a fellow pastor told me early on was always remember Jesus cares more about the church plant than you ever could. And so, yes, I won't be your pastor. Here's the good news. Grace Church has never been my church. I've been the pastor of it, but it's not my church. It's Jesus' church. He died for you. His body was broken and his blood was shed. What links will God go to to deliver and protect his people on their journey? He will send his own son to die and then raise him from the dead so that he will now sit ascended at the right hand of God the Father interceding for his people who desperately need his help. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your care. Thank you for your concern. Thank you for the way in which you show how committed you are to the well-being of your people in the sending of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, as we have occasion to not only remember, to, but to partake by faith in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, we pray that you would use it for our betterment, that you would use it for our blessing, that you would use it for our good, that you would use it to strengthen us in this journey in which we find ourselves. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.